You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Denver Riggleman was a very conservative Republican from Virginia, still is a very conservative Republican from Virginia, a state that was trending blue until the recent unpleasantness. Riggleman uh, was a member of the rabidly conservative House Freedom Caucus. Those were the Tea Party crazies who now seem positively sane compared to the Trumpist crazies. And then Riggleman made the mistake of officiating at a gay friend's wedding and social conservatives freaked the fuck out funded a primary challenger, and Riggleman lost his seat in 2020 despite being endorsed by Donald Trump. Rona Romney McDaniel, she's the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee and Mitt Romney's niece because we live in a meritocracy. Never forgot that we live in a meritocracy. Anyway, last month, McDaniel rolled out a big new campaign to attract low-information LGBT voters to the GOP, She called it the RNC Pride Coalition. And days later, McDaniel had to issue a shit-eating apology because social conservatives were demanding her resignation. The RNC Pride Coalition, which was her idea, was quietly euthanized and McDaniel sent an email out to social conservatives reaffirming the Republican Party's opposition to same-sex marriage as well as its support for dismantling anti-discrimination statutes that protect LGBT people from discrimination just so we're clear on who and what the GOP is, where queer people are concerned. They hate us, still. And yet, every four years, every two years, every six months, the LGBT community gets gaslit by bullshitting self-hating gay conservatives and mainstream media outlets looking for a new story to tell. And the story they like to tell us constantly is that, gee whiz, maybe today's GOP isn't as anti-gay or anti-queer or anti-trans as it once was. Yeah, no. They're still anti-LGBT, still anti-gay, still anti-queer, still anti-trans. If anything, the anti-gay, anti-queer, anti-trans rhetoric from the right is getting worse, not better. Take, for example, North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. He is a rising star in the GOP. He's running for governor of North Carolina, And he's doing most of his campaigning from the pulpits of tax-exempt churches that shouldn't be tax-exempt. And Robinson is giving the GOP base what it wants. Anti-gay, anti-trans, hate. There's no other word for it. He just gave a sermon at the Berean Baptist Church in Winston-Salem in which he said, well, I'm not going to read it myself. It's on YouTube. Let's have a listen. Where I will dwell with him someday. There I'll praise him and I'll adore him. Singing all eternity, praising his name. Praising his name. But just think of stepping on shore and finding in heaven. Of touching a hand and finding it God's. Of breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory. Okay, sorry. That wasn't Robinson. 
That was the Sweeney Todd Tonsorial Parlor Barbershop Quartet from X Gay Hell. They sang before Robinson spoke, and I've never seen four white men look at big, black, pendulous, handheld mics with such longing before. And if you think listening to that was bad, and if I had to listen to it, you had to listen to it, after watching it, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to have an erection again in the same room with four white guys. So good job, Berean Baptist Church. Anyway, let's get to Robinson's bullshit. After comparing gay people to cow shit and declaring cow shit more desirable because you can fertilize fields with it, you can fertilize fields with Santorum too, Mr. Robinson, but whatever, here's what Robinson had to say about why gay people are inferior to straight people. Now let's look at it this way. Gay couple, straight couple, dark room, dark room, nine months later, gay couple, two people, nine months later, heterosexual, three people. These people are superior because they can do something these people can't do. Because that's the way God created it to be. I'm tired of this society trying to tell me it's not so. He also had a little something to say about trans people. I'm going to play this clip. If you're trans and feeling a little vulnerable right now, you might want to skip ahead. Ain't but two genders. Male and female. Two. There are two genders, male and female. care how much you cut yourself up, drug yourself up, and dress yourself up. You still either one or two things. You either a man or a woman. You might be a cut up, dressed up, drugged up, ugly man or a woman. But you still a man or a woman. Okay, first off, fuck him. He's wrong. Trans people, you exist. You are not ugly. And now, before I say what I want to say next, let me just say first, that beauty comes in all different shapes and sizes. Hot is subjective and confidence is hot and different people find all different kinds of people and all different kinds of bodies hot. So everyone out there just needs to be confident that someone else out there finds you hot. Someone finds your type hot regardless of size or gender. Okay. Now I want to say what I wanted to say. Is everybody braced? Because I am going to reference conventional standards of male beauty now. I am not endorsing those standards. What I am doing is suggesting that Mark Robinson falls short of the same standards of beauty he's weaponizing when he attacks trans people and claims they're ugly. Mark Robinson, if you've seen him, is a very big guy. He doesn't himself embody conventional and prevailing standards of male beauty. He is no Michael B. Jordan. He's no Idris Elba. He's no Shawn Mendes. So, it was a little jarring to watch him accuse other people of being unworthy of respect or their full civil equality because of the way they look. Trans people, he can tell, are trans by looking at them. And he attacks them for not reflecting the same conventional prevailing standards of male or female beauty that he himself falls far short of. Judge not, lest ye be judged, Mr. Robinson, as someone or other once said. <laughs> okay, now I want to back up real quick and talk about that whole straight people being superior thing. I don't think Mark Robinson is going to hear this, so I'm not arguing with him and this isn't for him. But I get emails and calls all the time from young people who were raised in the kind of church, kind of churches where Robinson was preaching and campaigning last week. 
Cam preaching, preach painting, whatever it is he's doing. And these young people find their way to the Lovecast and other sex positive podcasts and other really great sex positive Instagram accounts and other sex positive writers. And they're busy unlearning what the Mark Robinsons of the world taught them about sex and their pastors and their parents taught them about sex and love and gender. So a lot of my listeners may know what I'm about to say, but some new listeners may be hearing this for the first time. Some young gay and lesbian listeners I'm saying this to you and for you, and I'm going to unpack this a bit. You're not inferior. Sure, gay people can't make babies. That is true. Unless we want to. And then suddenly we can. So it's not like gay people don't know the secret recipe. It's not like gay people have to break into the National Archives and steal the Declaration of Independence because how to make a baby is written in invisible ink on the back of it every time we want to make a baby. We know how to make a baby. Gay men can make babies. Lesbians can make babies. Sometimes we make them with each other or with surrogates or sperm donors. Sometimes two gay men can make a baby because when a gay cis man and a gay trans man love each other very much, they can go into a room, give each other a very special hug, and nine months later, there are three people in that room. So that thing that only straight people can do, we can do it too when we want to. And you know what's hilarious about this whole argument? That the ability to make a baby makes straight people superior to gay people? Straight people spend most of their lives desperately trying to avoid doing that thing only straight people can do. That thing gay people can't do except when gay people want to, which is make a baby. I'm not going to leap to the other side and suggest that being gay is superior. It's not. It's different. But when you don't want to make a baby, which most people don't want to do most of the time, being gay is pretty convenient. And when you do want to make a baby, which some people do once or twice in their lives, being gay presents a problem, but not an insurmountable one. Like all four members of the Sweeney Todd Tonsorial Parlor Barbershop Quartet from Ex-Gay Hell, it is a mountable problem. So again, to new, young, gay, lesbian listeners who may still worry that gay sex is sick or sinful or inferior because it doesn't make babies, I'm here to tell you it's not and that you're not. You don't have to take my word for it, though. You just have to look at what the straight people are doing, what straight people have to teach us about sex, what straight people's behavior demonstrates about what sex is for. Because most of the time, even for straight people, it's not for making babies, that's why straight people use condoms and IUDs and have abortions and have sex after menopause and sex after vasectomies and oral sex and sex in the butt. Because sex is for making human connections. Sex is about relationships, intimacy, pleasure, and release. And every once in a while, for straight people and gay people alike, it's about making a baby. Which means there's nothing straight people can do in dark rooms or anywhere else that gay people can't that you can't. All right, coming up on this week's Savage Lovecast on the Micro and Magnum editions, tons of your questions, lots of my answers. And on the Magnum, Professor Lloyd Johnston is here for a special What You Got segment about the HIV epidemic, what it looks like now, and some interesting facts about young people and sex. All that coming up on this week's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 33-year-old bi cis woman living in New York City. I'm calling in response to the episode with the 23-year-old virgin. 
I have a quasi-sex success story for any virgins out there or people who might encounter older virgins out there. So around this time last year, I was on Bumble and I matched with a guy. We started talking. We really hit it off. We had a ton in common. We went out for a date and we had the best time. At the end of the date, I went to kiss him because we were really vibing. He pecked me really quickly on the cheek and basically was like, no, thanks. And I was really confused because we had such a great time. After I left, he texted me and told me that he, at the age of 32, was a virgin and had only ever kissed a girl once. And he was freaking out because he had recently lost a lot of weight. He had always been kind of socially awkward, but had been in therapy for a while and was really starting to put himself out there. He told me most women that he's told this to run in the opposite direction. I took some time to think about it and decided it would be kind of fun to embark on this sexual journey with him. So I took his virginity at the age of 32. Uh, We were both 32 at the time. And it was incredibly fun. I got to teach him how to give oral sex. I gave him his first blowjob. I had sex with him for the first time. He was super into it and super into me. It felt really empowering, really hot. And throughout the entire time, we we started seeing each other for maybe two or three months. I did feel like he was a little too green for me to be with long term, but we were really open and communicative. He understood that how I felt and that I needed him to go and experience the world a, a lot more before committing to any kind of relationship with him. So we had a really successful short term relationship it kind of ran its course. Uh, we had a lot of sex since this was the first time he had ever done it. He wanted it a lot and he really wanted to please me and learn how to do all of the things. And yeah, we wound up going our separate ways. He now has a girlfriend and I'm so happy for him. I introduced him to this show. So maybe he's listening. You know who you are if you are. And uh, I'm now in a relationship with someone and I couldn't be happier. He and I still occasionally keep in touch. And I told him I'd always be there for him as his first one. But for anyone listening, don't let the virgin label scare you off. It was incredibly fun. He was a really eager learner and we had a great time. I said we were going to phase out the success stories, but I would bring them back every once in a while if we got a really good one and I wanted to make an exception. Well, Your Call is the first success story we're making an exception for and bringing back this week. And occasionally, occasionally if we want to, a sex success story. And I wanted to run this one because, yeah, good note to everybody out there. Don't let the virgin label scare you off. You can have a really good experience with a virgin. But more importantly, for the virgins out there, don't be afraid to scare people off with the virgin. I guess it's not a label. The virgin fact about yourself. Think of all the women who ran screaming when this guy in this story told them that he was a virgin. They cleared the field so that the right woman would come along. The caller would come along. The woman who regarded sleeping with this guy, uh, taking his for taking his virginity, having this first sexual experience with him, giving him his first sexual experience, not taking anything from him, 
She regarded that as something fun, pleasurable, erotic, kind of an honor. Yeah, if the virgin in this story had lied to all those other women and pretended that he was more experienced than he actually was, he may have fumbled into sex with somebody who wasn't as kind and considerate and compassionate and wasn't able and ready and excited about meeting him exactly where he was at. Never fun, I realize, when you tell someone something about yourself, when you make yourself vulnerable and you reveal a fact about yourself that's relevant to the sex you might want to have with that person, and that person runs away. But if that person runs away, once they know that fact about you, whatever it might be, not someone you wanted to be in bed with anyway. And someone's going to come along that you're going to share that fact with, who's going to feel honored that you shared that fact with them, is going to want to be with you because of it or because you shared that with them, because you trusted them enough to share that with them. And that's the right person to go to bed with. So that is a great success story. Thank you for calling and sharing it. If you have a success story, listener, and you think it might be exceptional, it might be another one that we will make an exception for in the future, feel free to call and share. Hey, Dan, I have a problem with intimacy when I'm starting to date someone, a gay man. I also do erotic massages. I have been for 30 years and sometimes things do happen and I have no issues with that. And I don't know if it's because there's money coming in and it turns me on or I also am in the daddy category now. So on Grindr, I live close to university. I get a lot of young guys between 22 and 30 to come over. No problem there. I'm just really sexual with them. But it's trying to date somebody. I'm on my third date with this guy now. And he came over after we had dinner. And um, Meet the Fockers was on. And we just started watching Meet the Fockers. And we laughed. We had a great time. We cuddled. And then he was on his way. And... He didn't really try either, which is weird. I don't know if he's waiting for me to make the move. He's a lot younger. But I don't think I'm really sexually attracted to this guy. I'm not sure how to say it. How do you say after you've had three dates with somebody, three dates with somebody, and you say, hmm, I'm not really attracted to your body, or I don't feel like maybe we should just be friends. I just don't feel like we should be intimate. But I think it's more than that. I haven't had anybody sleep in my bed in over four years. I can't have them stay overnight if I just have a a little romp with somebody. So I don't know. Intimacy is a big problem. But when it comes to having sex with a young guy on Grindr or getting paid for massage and then things happen, not a problem. I'm like a whore. (laughs) What's up with that? You don't have to tell someone you're not attracted to their body. You just have to tell someone, look, you're a wonderful guy. It's been great to get to know you, but I'm just not feeling that spark, that romantic spark. Never an easy thing to hear, not an easy thing to say, an easier thing to say than to hear, but still it can be hard to say that, but you say it and you say it directly. And then if there's a friendship that can be salvaged from that relationship, you salvage the friendship. If you're interested in having a friendship, if not, then you just send them on their way. And if they're not interested in being friends, if they were interested only in you as a potential partner, they will be on their way. As for the intimacy issue, 
You don't like having people in your space. You don't like people spending the night in your bed. You have tons of great sex with hot guys in their 20s and 30s who are into you as a daddy. You have good and fulfilling consensual sexual connections with your clients and your massage practice. Okay, are you happy? Do you miss the kind of relationship intimacy, having a partner, a boyfriend, a husband in the home that other people want, that you've been told that people ought to want, should want, that you've been told you should want? Do you ache for any of that? If not, just let it go. You have the kind of intimacy in your life that works for you, that makes you happy. You don't have the kind of intimacy in your life that other people might want, but not all other people want. There are lots of people out there who want what you have, who don't want, you know, like the previous caller, don't want to live with anybody, prefer to live alone, don't want anybody in their space, want, don't want that kind of, you know, coupledom or throupledom intimacy that other people have. You're not defective and you're not broken. There's so many people out there who are happier single and wind up, you know, entering into relationships, seeking out a kind of intimacy that's wrong for them because it's what they're supposed to want. And they've convinced themselves that they just have to keep looking for it or they're damaged or broken somehow. And then they get into those relationships, they make them unhappy, and then they sabotage those relationships and get out of them. Seems to me that you're a big step ahead of people who are currently trapped in that cycle because you don't sound miserable or unhappy. It doesn't sound like there's anything missing from your life. You're going through the motions of seeking a partner for some reason, but you don't sound devastated about the third date you went on where you watched that Meet the Fockers movie and then nothing happened because you didn't want anything to happen. The shit you want to happen, sexually, erotically, that's happening for you. All right, great. The life you have is the life that you want. Let go of the life that you were told you ought to have or that you should have or that everybody wants and that there's something wrong with you if you don't want it. Because there isn't. There isn't anything wrong with you unless you're unhappy. And you know what? You don't sound, listening to your call, you don't sound the least bit unhappy with the way things are for you. So enjoy them. Enjoy the life you've built for yourself. It's working for you. Stop comparing it to the life that other people have, a life that you don't want. Hey, Dan. I am a gay 31-year-old cisgendered male living in Southern California. I've been in a relationship with my fiance for about five years, which we are semi-long distance due to me finishing my last year of undergrad. And recently we had an issue of me signing up for a hookup site and someone he knew told him about it. Me and him were able to have a big conversation about communication and trust to help get us back on track. And we're pretty good now. Me and my fiance had prior conversations about open relationships, which he knew I was for, but he never gave me a clear cut answer to how he felt. And I wrongfully assumed he would never get there. But after our big conversation recently, he expressed that he never was a hard no to the idea, but just needed time to figure out how that could work for him especially going through trauma of being cheated on in his previous relationships. 
So my question is, what is the best way to get him more comfortable to an open relationship without feeling under duress? You left something out of your call. Why did you put your profile up uh, on a hookup app? And what did you tell your fiance after a mutual, I guess, at least on your side, former friend, ratted you out to him that you had a profile up on a hookup app? As far as I'm concerned, there's a lot of reasons people get on hookup apps. A lot of people get on hookup apps with no intention of hooking up. Some people get on hookup apps to be inspired, to feel horny, to have a wank, to socialize. A lot of gay men treat hookup apps like another kind of social media site and have profiles there just for the interactions or the eye candy and have no intention of actually meeting up to the frustration of other people on hookup apps who are actually looking to meet up. Presumably that was what was going on with you. Presumably, you know, if your fiance has issues because he's been cheated on in the past and that's his hang up about having an open relationship or even a non-awkward conversation about opening up the relationship with you, his fiance, you know, somebody he's been with for five years, it would have been a major, major crisis in your relationship, if not the end of your relationship and the end of your engagement, if you'd gone there looking to hook up. So I'm just going to assume that the conversation you had with your fiance after you were ratted out by your former friend, at least on your side, was, yeah, you had no intention of hooking up. You're long distance right now and you were just checking it out. But it forced the conversation, forced the discussion, or, or forced you both to revisit the conversation about opening the relationship. Seems like your boyfriend, your fiance, pardon me, is willing to have that conversation, is willing to open the relationship, but he's going to need you to be sensitive to the fact that he has, as he called it, I think it's maybe not what I would call it. He has trauma. He carries trauma around because he's been cheated on in the past. Other relationships, other boyfriends cheated on him and that was traumatic for him. And yeah, okay, well, you're gonna have to be sensitive to that, sensitive to your fiance's trauma and take that into consideration. And one way that you demonstrate sensitivity to his trauma now that you know about it, assuming you didn't know about it before, is by not signing up on hookup apps and putting your identifying details out there for other people to see and then report back to him. That would be one good way to demonstrate to your boyfriend that you want to take this slowly and you're not going to rush him and you don't want to make him uncomfortable or make him feel insecure or re-traumatize him or throw him back into those traumatic moments in his past when he realized he'd been cheated on by his previous boyfriends. You don't want to put it back in those moments. And so you're not going to do this again. I think that's where you start. Sorry that we're revisiting this discussion because I got on a hookup app and you found out about it. Not the best way to revisit this conversation or have this conversation. And so I won't do that again, but let's keep having this conversation because you'd like to have an open relationship. You're long distance right now. Maybe he'd like to also have an open relationship at the moment, but you're going to talk about it in advance and you're not going to do anything again in the future without his prior knowledge and consent. You're not going to do anything that he's not comfortable with. And that, I'm sure, what you did, getting on a hookup app, putting your face 
I assume your face or your tattoos or something that was identifying on that hookup app for other people to see, including other people who knew him, who felt that they had to run to him and tattle on you. Yeah, you're not going to do that again. At the very least, when you get on a hookup app in the future, it's going to be with his permission. And so when someone comes running to him, God, if you have shitty friends, if you have more than one shitty friend who would do something like that, if someone's going to come running to him, instead of being blindsided by that, he'll be able to say, oh yeah, I know, I'm on that same hookup app. We're in an open relationship, an honest, ethical, open relationship. Hi, all. I am a genderqueer queer uh, who lives in Chicago, and I was assigned female at birth, and I have a question about the holidays and, like, just advocating for myself around my pronouns. I use they, them. My in-laws kind of waffled between using my pronouns and misgendering me, and my bio parents, are they've never used uh, they, them for me, despite many acts. I'm just kind of wondering... Is it worth the fight sometimes, or do I just kind of shut up and take it, even though it really sucks? It depends on how important it is to you that your in-laws and your parents gender you correctly. They stop misgendering you, that they use your pronouns. If it's really important to you, you have to be prepared to go to war. You know, I remember when I came out to my family as gay and my mom who came around and was great in the end and, and came around very quickly. I always like to say that she came around quick and then came out swinging uh, in defense of, of gay people and, and, and her son and, and then other queer people. But at first she didn't want to meet anybody that I was dating and I really had to fight her on that. I had to eventually put my foot down and go to war. And tell her that if my boyfriends couldn't come over, I wouldn't come over. Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to go to war with your in-laws and parents? They may see this as trivial. They may find it confusing to use what they've always used. Although, you know, occasionally even people who only use they, them as a plural pronoun will say things like, did you see the doctor today? What did they tell you? You could point that out to them on those occasions where they use they, them in a similar way to the, how you're asking them to use they, them, and then draw a line. Like if you keep insulting me like this, if you don't respect who I am, who I've told you that I am, I'm not going to come around. I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to show up for what I experience as degrading or dehumanizing or just simple inconsideration for my feelings. So what's it going to be? going to finally make the shift and use my pronouns? Or are you going to dig in, keep being an asshole about this and see a whole lot less of me than you might otherwise? Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old cis bisexual from Denver. I've been single six months after a seven-year relationship ended earlier this year. I decided to try to find a regular fuck buddy while I heal from my previous relationship. I found the perfect candidate, a man who lived a few doors down. He was recently divorced and a fellow pothead from Michigan. We flirted and bantered for a few months. And a few weeks ago, I taped my number to his door and we scheduled a date. We had an incredible time after a public meetup close to home. We kept the date going. I was very clear about my emotional availability and that I was looking for something casual. 
12 hours later, let's just say it was a lot of bong hits, discussions on 90s grunge music, and eventually some mind-blowing sex. He left my apartment early that morning, and before he left, he asked me to have dinner that night. I never heard from him again. Later that week, I was shocked to see a police officer outside of his door as I was coming home. The officer informed me that he had passed, likely the morning that he had left my apartment. I'm in a really weird headspace. This night, his death, the coroner's sign plastered to his door for a week, walking past his apartment every time I take out the trash. It all feels awful. I feel as though I'm overreacting, but I can't seem to let myself off the hook for that night. I keep thinking I did something wrong or caused his death somehow. Do I even have a right to grieve something so short-lived? All right, you don't say what the cause of death was, but I assume it was a suicide? No, I, I actually don't know. So when I came home the day that I saw the police officers outside of his apartment, you know, I said, I've been trying to get a hold of my friend who lives in that apartment. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you that he passed. And he was a little bit older. He's 49. I'm 36. And he said it appeared to be natural, as natural as it could be for somebody that was 49. So to me, I took that as like no needle in his arm, but, and no, like obviously no obvious signs of suicide. I I have no idea. Okay. Well, yeah, man, I can see why you were impacted by this. I don't see why you feel guilt as opposed to feeling like this man's last night on earth, this man's last night in existence was a good night because of you. I go back and forth, but honestly, like, I don't know if he had any health problems. Like we truly hadn't spent any time, significant time together outside of just the elevator. Hi, how are you doing? And then that night, you know, we had talked a lot, but we, of course, didn't talk about his health. So I don't know if he had, you know, any kind of are, conditions. Wait, are, like, Are I, you worried you fucked this man to death? Yes. Okay, you, you, you have to let go of that. It is really rare for someone even having very athletic sex to, you know, have a heart attack and die uh, as a result okay. of it hours later. You have to let go of the guilt that you're feeling. Uh, you know, if anything, <laughs> you should be, you know, it is really hard. And, and, you know, a random, unexpected early death really forces us to confront our own mortality, how short our time is yeah. on earth, how little we can actually, how much we take for granted, but how little we should take for granted. Yeah. And, you know, it, my heart goes out to you. And, Grief has its own logic, and it is never okay to tell someone they're not allowed to grieve, and I'm not telling you you're not allowed to grieve. You made a connection. You really liked this guy. You you established some boundaries. He seemed like a really good candidate to be the person that you needed right now in your life, and that was taken from you suddenly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk all the time about how wonderful a short-term relationship can be. And how loving and transcendent a short-term relationship can be. And often, you know, ideally a short-term relationship is short-term because circumstances don't allow it to go on any longer. Sometimes it's short-term because the universe intervenes. 
you're yeah. you're allowed to feel your feelings about that. You're allowed to feel grief and you're allowed to feel love for this person that you spent one night for and to feel his absence now and to mourn him. Yeah. I haven't dealt with a lot of grief in life like, like this. I haven't had anyone close to me die. And even though he wasn't close, it felt closer than anyone I've known that's passed. And it, it just hit me in a different way. And I, you know, my friends kind of joke about it, which I understand like the story's crazy. And it is one of those stories that I'm sure in 10 years from now, I'll tell without so much like pain, I guess. I don't, and I feel as though like, why am I so sad? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, let, let's drill down on that pain. It, it's it's a, a particular kind of grief for what could have been, what might've been. Yeah. You know, you really connected with this guy to protect yourself at this moment. You established this boundary that you weren't as emotionally available as you may have been, you know, if you hadn't just gotten out of a a marriage, if you weren't, you know, only looking for a fuck buddy. But it sounds like you connected in such a way that maybe, and you made a dinner date for the next night, maybe you were rethinking those boundaries already. And that's... I was. (laughs) And that's what can be so weird about someone who's ripped from you unexpectedly very shortly after you meet them is that some part of your brain is projecting yourself far into the future and imagining not just what you could have with them in the future, but in some ways imagining the history you would already have with them at that point in the imagined future. And all of that was taken from you and a life ended. Feel it. Feel sad, feel grief, but do not, you know, and I'm not, again, telling you, you can't feel your feelings, but I just think the guilt is misplaced. Yeah. And that's what everyone's been telling me, but it's just hard. I don't know. Like when I can't know why or how or what happened, it's hard for me to process and I'm never going to know. So I have to accept that. Let's worst case scenario it then. He had some heart condition he wasn't aware of and the sex that he had with you resulted in a heart attack. Okay. Better that like a human connection and a last night on earth spent enjoying someone's company, having awesome sex. than he like took a zoom class and collapsed and died. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. If it was some medical condition that he wasn't aware of, or even one that he was aware of, it could have been anything. Running up the stairs, yeah. running downstairs to get a pizza, you know, deciding to mm-hmm. take up running again or, you know, a Zoom cloud. It could have been anything. It was you. Right. And that's not a bad thing. That's a, a wonderful thing. You lived a whole life, really, with this man in one night and a whole relationship unfolded. It definitely feels like that. It feels like I knew him forever. But yeah, I like, I don't even know if I know his last name. Oh my God, my heart. Like, I, 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 I ache for you. I ache for you. That's hard. That's, that's tough. It must be even harder with your friends telling you you're not allowed to feel sad about this. Yeah. I mean, they were definitely there the first day and like, you know, trying to support me. But after that, I just felt like, and a part of it was me. I feel as though I don't deserve to feel any way about it because I didn't know him. 
And like, why do I feel sad still? Like I have now, it's been probably three weeks now and I still feel this pang of like hurt and just everything, all the emotions, because I have, I have to walk past his door every time I leave my apartment, every time. And I got to watch the coroner go in and out and take his stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I got to watch, you know, the cleaning people come through and I saw his apartment empty like five days later. It's just like an entire life was erased and it just feels shitty. An entire life was erased, but also that imagined future, the the possibility that he represented for you in your life, not to make his death about you, but that's part of what's informing your sadness. Genuine grief for him, sadness for him, his family, but also some sadness for yourself and what might've been, what could have been. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to feel sad about that. And, you know, I am going to make this comparison. So you, nobody can yell at you for making this comparison. I'm making this comparison. When my mother died, I was a wreck and I was devastated. Until I, be, you know, I, I read something that, you know, grief is the price we pay for love. Queen Elizabeth II said it. And I saw that in a church where I was lurking to feel sad. And in an instant, my grief meant something. My grief was a memorial to my mother instead of a trap that I was in. And it became something beautiful. And so that would be what I would want to give to you. Allow yourself to feel this grief. It's not useless. You're entitled to it. And it is a memorial to this man who was going to leave this earth at some point as we all are, you will never forget him. Never. (laughs) And what you had with him, even though it was just a day was really important. In some ways, those kinds of human connections are all that matters and all that survives us. Yeah. I definitely feel good about the fact that I was able to connect with somebody like that again, because I had been, you know, I was in a relationship for seven years and it was my first like date. (laughs) So it was kind of like traumatic in that sense as well. I waited seven months to finally like put myself out there and I did. And then that's what happened. And now I'm like having a hard time putting myself back out there. Well, look at it this way. It can't go worse when you put yourself back out there. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) That's a good point. It's all up from here, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Listen. That's a good point. Good luck. And and my heart goes out to you. I appreciate the call so much. Uh, You know, I I hate that that Twitter discourse around this is valid, that is valid, but I'm going to use the V word. Your grief is valid. Thank you. That means a lot. It does. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am calling because my life has been changed by this podcast and by you, so thank you so very much for opening me up and making me feel more comfortable and, you know, being let me communicate with my partner. But the issue I have is that I still feel just incredibly guilty every time I orgasm, no matter what we're doing. I have really great sex with, with my wife, and we're both bisexual, and we've both experienced different things in the past, and we've got two kids, and we've had lots of partners, and life life is pretty good, but I just don't understand why there's guilt. Why is it that when I'm you know having a great time and really enjoying myself, those, those final moments, I just feel like shame and guilt, like I shouldn't do it. I'm not religious. I wasn't brought up in a religious 
background. I don't have religious parents. I've been listening to you for forever. Uh, my wife and I are open about everything, you know, porn and what we like and we have a great time. But for some reason, I just, every time I have that orgasm, there's guilt. And I just wish I knew how to unpack that or, or to work that out. So I'd really love your advice. My hunch is that you're misinterpreting your own feelings during the refractory period. You've read a lot about sex. You've listened to me and others talk a lot about sex. It sounds like you know a lot about sex. You've had a lot of sex. I'm sure you're familiar with that term, the refractory period. After a man climaxes, he suddenly loses interest in sexual activity, in continuing to have sex. His erection goes away. doesn't feel good to have his dick touched. And also in that moment, all sorts of things that were turning him on prior to climax, it's not just that you lose interest in them. They're suddenly kind of repulsive. I don't know how many times I've been with guys who were really kind of turned on about wanting to eat their own cum. You know, they wanted to be snowballed or fed their own cum. And then they came and then they didn't want to eat their own cum anymore or be fed their own cum. And I think more snowballs are contemplated than thrown or suggested than actually thrown or spat into anybody else's mouths because the person who you're blowing and is telling you they want you to spit their comeback into their mouths after you suck it out of their necks the minute they come yeah not so interested anymore the refractory period has the power to do that it's this big sudden drop and it has an emotional component and you suddenly feel differently in that moment about sex. You kind of are done. You want to do something else. The cliche in films, you know, people rolled over and lit a cigarette. They distracted themselves from sex. They turned away from sex. Our house, we run downstairs, we get a bowl of ice cream. I think that's what's going on for you. I think you're just feeling that drop, that sudden falling off, sudden disinterest, even revulsion. You know, you think about a lot of things that we do when we're having sex. And if we weren't having sex while we were doing them, we would think that was pretty gross. Touching somebody else's asshole with your tongue, swapping spit with somebody else. If you're just going to walk across the room and spit into someone else's mouth, you would think that was gross. But if you were sexually attracted to that person and sexual tension built for a while, and then you were making out and you were swapping a lot of spit, you were essentially spitting into their mouths and they were spitting into yours. It's a turn on while you're aroused. The instant you're no longer aroused, it kind of goes back to, oh, that's a little gross. Was I really just doing that? I think that's what's happening here. I don't think you feel guilty. You weren't raised in a religious tradition. You don't feel like a bad person uh, for being who you are sexually. You're just confused. You're just experiencing that shift back to ew, yuck, or that falling off of sexual interest or arousal or desire and experiencing it as, well, this must be guilt about what I just did, as opposed to this is what happens to almost everybody after climax, after doing what you just did. There is this moment where suddenly sex, which is so all-consuming and so interesting, while before you're having it, when you want to have it, while you're having it, the last thing you want to do is put your tongue in somebody else's asshole after your climax or have somebody spit your cum into your mouth after you've blown your load in theirs. Think of it that way and think of what might be a better pivot than obsessing in that moment about how you might be feeling. 
and allowing yourself to experience it as guilt. Think about what you can do to distract yourself. At the very least, tell yourself in that moment, I am not feeling guilty. I am just not feeling it anymore because now I am in my refractory period. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Lloyd Johnston, a research professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. He was the founding director and principal investigator on the National Monitoring the Future study for its first 43 years. And he's written and lectured extensively on the epidemiology of drug use. In more recent years, he's pursued epidemiological research related to the spread of HIV AIDS. And he's just published a monograph on that subject. Hey, Professor Johnston, thanks for jumping on the phone this morning. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, I guess my first question would be, what's a monograph? Uh, The monograph is primarily about risk and protective behaviors for HIV AIDS. And we've been tracking uh, young people in their 20s, uh, specifically age 21 to 30, for about 15 years. They're all high school graduates, but at this time in our history, uh, that account they account for about 96% of uh, the age group. So, but it's nationally representative uh, of high school graduates, and we cover the interval 2005 to 2020. I mentioned the 20 because that means we're not really into the pandemic yet. So, what we have in this monograph will not reflect whatever effects the pandemic is going to have on these behaviors. Okay, so so you've been monitoring the risks young people take and the protective behaviors they might engage in around HIV/AIDS since really kind of before PrEP came along, before the daily pill that protects at least you know it's recommended for gay and bi men by the CDC. So you've been looking at this data for a very long time. What has changed? What have you noticed? What are the trends here that you've identified in your monograph? Yeah, there are some important ones, and they're interesting beyond uh, HIV. One is that the number of people in this age group who report having one or more sex partners has uh, declined. It's declined primarily among males who historically have, have been more likely to report multiple sex partners. But by about 2017, the males had uh, declined enough to merge and have the same level of not having multiple sex partners as, as uh, females. Since 2017, there's been a little increase for both uh, genders, but it's it's interesting that I think that males are down about seven percentage points from where they were in 2010. Uh, Females have shown no change in this, and both genders have shown a little increase since 2018, but not a lot. Okay, so who do you blame for this? I mean, people, other research, other scientists have identified what they're calling a sex recession, particularly uh, among young men. A lot of young men have had one or fewer sex partners. What do you blame? Some people are blaming video games or pornography or the internet (laughs) or, you know, males kind of slipping in this way socially. I don't want to start to sound like Josh Hawley, asshole senator, but the social status of males or insecurities of, around males or more people just staying home masturbating? Did you guys get into the causes of this? And do you think it's a problem? We don't 
get into as much of the explanatory material as you like, like attitudes, what's uh, related to this. This is a sub-study that's grafted onto a much larger study, and we don't have as many questions as usual. So the question you raise is a good one, but I don't have a good answer to it, except to say that another sexual behavior which has shown an important change is total abstention from having sexual partners. And uh, there we've seen uh, abstention uh, rate going up about nine percentage points from 2008 to 2018. It's a fair change in the number of having no sexual partners of either gender. And at the same time, there's been some increase in females uh, and not having sexual partners either, but not as large a change, about a four percentage point change. After 2018, both of these lines leveled off, oh, good. males and females. <laughs> good. I, started, yeah. I was starting to worry that if it continued at this rate, that those of us in the sex advice racket are going to get put out of business. <laughs> get worried whether we're going to have a growing population or not. Yeah, well, fuck that. I don't care about a growing population. I think there's too many human beings on the planet. I'm just worried if nobody's having sex, there's no one for me to give sex advice to, and then how am I going to make a living? <laughs> Well, then, then you've got to ask your audience to change their behaviors. <laughs> but I think those are kind of interesting uh, changes, and they're not just important for HIV. They have a lot of other implications. So have we seen HIV AIDS rates or HIV infection rates falling because of the decline in sexual activity or the adoption of protective behaviors? As to what caused it, I think there are probably multiple causes. But uh, the CDC keeps track of every year how many new HIV cases are identified. Don't tell me how because I ask me how because I don't know how, but uh, they turn out an estimate every year and it's been going down for the last several years, which is the good news, but I suspect it's for a multitude of reasons, <clears throat> including uh, the use of new drugs to um, either prevent HIV transmission in the first place or to uh, treat it after it occurs. That's important to note that the, if people are getting are, are in treatment, they have HIV, and they're in treatment, and their viral loads are undetectable, they can't infect someone. They're uninfectious. And so right. like the, the, this two-pronged approach, at least in we've seen really steep drop-offs in gay and bi-male communities, this two-pronged approach where people with HIV in treatment taking their drugs who are compliant – aren't infectious and people on PrEP, it's very hard to infect them if they're taking their drug, their, their PrEP uh, pill every day. There yes. are big missing pieces yes. of this. A lot of people of color and people who are poor have not as easy access to medical care or these drugs. Of course, HIV infection rates are still rising in a lot of those communities. Yes, indeed. And, and some of those drugs are intended to get the viral load, as they call it down to an undetectable level. So it's pretty powerful. I think you said it, when it's at that level, you can't, you can't transmit the disease. So that, that's helpful. Um, I'm just going to give you a number as to what the CDC estimates now. In 2019, they say there was about 35,000 new HIV infections in the U.S., and roughly 70% of those were among gay and bisexual men. So by far the greatest risk factor has to do with uh, same-gender behavior. Well, anal sex remains the most efficient mode of transmission for HIV-AIDS. Yeah. So that's one of, the, uh, one of the interesting findings, I think, 
Now, there are other risk factors that I've looked at. One of them is needle sharing, a well-known vector for uh, spreading HIV. Fortunately, in this population, and I note that they are all high school graduates, the rate of needle sharing in in, uh, the past 12 months is very low. It's um, three one-hundredths of a percent. So, and it's about the same for males and females. Now, if we look at lifetime needle sharing, that's at higher rates. That was rising for a while. But in terms of what they're doing in their 20s, there's very low rates of uh, needle sharing. I'm sure they're an underestimate, but uh, in a sense, not, not a vector of great concern at the moment. You know, one of the things I've noticed writing about sex for 30 years and doing this podcast for 15 years is 30 years ago, I got a question every day, usually several questions every day about HIV and the risk of HIV transmission or an HIV transmission that just occurred. Someone who I'd hear from someone who just got infected. I hardly get letters about HIV anymore. I get far, far more letters about herpes, Mm -hmm. about HSV, uh, about warts than about HIV. And sometimes even I, a gay man in my 50s who lived through the worst of the AIDS crisis, sometimes even I kind of like forget about HIV mm-hmm. in a whole day, which is insane. A million people a year are still dying from HIV AIDS all over the world. And yet it sort of has exited the conversation, the cultural conversation. Do you find right. that shocking as someone who's dedicated your life to researching this? Well, in the early years of uh, AIDS, it, it was almost a death sentence to get AIDS, and that was very vividly in the news. I think that as these drugs have come along and either can prevent the transmission, uh, so-called PrEP drugs, have no longer a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people don't have to die. They don't even have to go to you know, progressing in the disease. Uh, if they get uh, any of the fairly new drugs to prevent that, either prevent the transmission or prevent the disease from proceeding. Progressing to full-blown AIDS. Yeah. So I think that it's no how people see AIDS is, I think, changed a lot. And it's not as frightening. But it's crazy to think about herpes and HSV are not death sentences either. And at least from my perch, it seems to be all anybody can talk about sometimes. There will be a week where every call is about herpes or HSV and nobody's going to die. Well, very, very few people are going to die of herpes or HSV, particularly HSV. But you get calls. I get calls. I get calls. And I hardly get calls about HIV anymore. It just strikes me as very odd. Well, the, the drugs available today are impressive in how powerful they are if used uh, soon enough. And I think that there's a side of this which is uh, has a parallel in the drug use area where I've written for much more time than here. And that is what I call generational forgetting. If you grew up in a generation where there were a lot of adverse outcomes from drug use, for example, and that was in the news, you tend not to use your... your, your inoculated against using to some degree psychologically mm-hmm. but if you grow up in, a, in an era where there isn't there isn't that much by way of uh, very negative outcomes like deaths then you're um, not as worried about it and i think to some degree that's occurred with hiv that certainly has occurred with drugs and and it can it can be a cycle that repeats 
spot in certain periods. I think there's a danger to not having as much respect for the uh, behavior and how dangerous it can be. So I think to some degree, with the populations at risk are somewhat assured, and therefore potentially more willing to, to do things that are dangerous. Professor Johnson, uh, where can listeners who are curious about reading the monograph, reading uh, the, the paper, the, I guess a monograph is something more than a paper that you just published about HIV AIDS and risk and protective behaviors in young adults, where can they find it? Yes, go to monitoringthefuture.org. Lloyd Johnston is a research professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old woman living in Alberta, Canada. I moved in with my partner of two years at the start of 2021. And in that time, I have had some issues in the bedroom. Namely, as soon as we moved in, we had bed bugs, followed by I had an ectopic pregnancy and a miscarriage. And while I was intending on getting an abortion, I um, ended up with a very traumatic hospital stay in a province that was, at the time, having more COVID cases than Florida and needed a blood transfusion. Anyways, started to kind of get our sex life back in September and we are poly and now he's been tested positive for an STI and I am just wondering if there's any way that I can feel safe having sex in a bed again because the last year has just been so much trauma based around a bed. Have you considered having sex not in a bed? That's an option. I assume you got a new mattress. I assume you got a lot of new bed clothes after the bed bug infestation. I'm really sorry about the unplanned pregnancy, the atopic pregnancy, the miscarriage, a hospital stay at this horrible time, all of which you're associating with sex as a consequence of sex. And in a way, of course, an unplanned pregnancy is occasionally a consequence of sex. And your partner has an STI. I assume your partner got tested. You're poly, you're open, you're sensible people, you're regularly testing. Well, you know, the occasional, hopefully treatable STI is a known risk of having an open relationship. It's a risk for a closed relationship too. People cheat and bring STIs home. Sometimes people in what are believed to be closed relationships are at greater risk of contracting an STI from their partner. Because if the partner cheats, takes a risk, goes home, can't suddenly start using condoms with somebody they haven't been using condoms with for years or decades because that's going to flag that there's a reason they need to start using condoms. Whereas if you're in an honest, open, polyamorous relationship and there's a risk event or the appearance of an STI symptom, you can start using condoms again to protect your partner and be clear and honest with your partner about why you're using condoms again to protect them. But yeah, beds and sex, sex is powerful. Sex is consequential. Unplanned pregnancies, sexually transmitted infections. You haven't faced this and I hope you never do. Intimate partner violence. There's a lot of risk and danger being sexually active adults brings into our lives or comes bundled with being sexually active adults. That's why we take steps. That's why we watch out for red flags. That's why we get vaccinated for HPV. That's why we use condoms with new partners. 
we try to mitigate those risks and then enjoy sex. And it's almost like you have to have two track thinking, like there are the risks and there's the pleasure and the enjoyment. You want to be cognizant of the risks, address the risks, sometimes be aware and on the watch for risks if they manifest themselves during a sexual encounter with somebody you thought you could trust so that you can extricate yourself or con into it or go get a condom if you think a condom is required in that moment. And so you need to, that, that kind of bifurcated thinking where you're letting yourself go and enjoying the sex, enjoying the pleasure while still there's some part of your, not reptile brain, your higher functioning cranial systems that's looking out for yourself still. And that becomes something you don't have to think about. You need to get there. Enjoying the sex that you can enjoy, I think, can help you get there. If it's just masturbation you want to do now and not masturbation in a bed, non-penetrative sex, sex that doesn't bring a risk of an unplanned pregnancy and everything that flowed from that the last time you had this unplanned pregnancy, this atopic pregnancy, sex that doesn't put you at risk of acquiring a sexually transmitted infection from this partner or other partners. You know, we talk often when people are going to, you know, try something new when they're going to get into dom sub or BDSM or cockolding. We talk about the importance of baby steps. Well, sometimes in our lives we hit a wall where suddenly a lot of the potential negative consequences of being a sexually active adult that we the risks we take for the pleasures of sex come at us all at once. And when we hit that kind of wall, baby steps, you can reintroduce those into your lives or you can take them for the first time ever. And you can take baby steps around what sounds like is probably, except for the poly thing, a relatively vanilla sexual life. And just like, you know, when you were young and just beginning to explore sex, you weren't jumping into you know, missionary position, penetrative sex with new partners, you were exploring, perhaps exploring on your own, alone. You were taking baby steps and then, you know, making out, you know, if you had the kind of, I hope, and I hope everybody has this kind of gradual sexual initiation where, you know, you're making out with somebody and you're heavy petting and rolling around, but you're not quite going all the way yet. Those baby steps that perhaps you took early in your sex life, Bring them back. Take those baby steps again. Tiptoe back up to the sex that seems so risky and dangerous right now and consequential. And learn to enjoy touch and intimacy and feeling connected to your body and orgasms again without hot sticky loads being blown up your vaginal canal that puts you at risk of an unplanned or planned pregnancy or other sexually transmitted infections. And get out of that bed. Engage in those explorations in cars, in parks where you're not going to be caught, in the living room, on the kitchen counter. It, it, it can feel silly to say, oh, I, I associate all of this with a bed because people are, have sex in all sorts of different places. But if that helps for you to attach all of the negative weight to the bed, the negatives that came with all of these experiences over the last year to that bed, to that physical thing, and then get the fuck away from that thing, so that you can enjoy sex again. That can be constructive. That can be helpful. So uh, I feel for you. I, I have been there. There have been times in my life where everything that I enjoyed about sex brought into my life a whole bunch of drama and conflict uh, and STIs that I didn't enjoy so much. And I took a step back. Take a step back. And then baby steps back in.
Hi, Dan and team. I was looking for some advice on how to proceed. A couple days ago, I was at my sister's house for a party and I went upstairs to say goodbye to my 13-year-old nephew and found the door locked. He was in there with a friend who's either 16 or 18. I'm not sure. I just know he keeps failing his driving test. Anyway, neither one of them is super mature for their age. But obviously, if he's 18, that makes things a little bit different. I don't know if I should tell my sister about this or not. They opened the door pretty quickly after I knocked, but it was awkward. A little background on my family. I've always had a feeling my nephew might be gay, and I've been open and make sure he knows that, you know, I accept all people and there's nothing wrong with that. My family, on the other hand, while they say they would be okay with it in theory, they would definitely, definitely prefer that he was not. Uh, we live in eastern Washington, and they're pretty involved in the Russian community. And for whatever reason, most of the population here is very conservative and Christian. Anyway, this kid is also an odd man out in his family. I know fathers of both families have made jokes and comments how they don't like that they talk so much online together and spend time together. So I don't know. I don't want to shame anyone or make a big deal out of anything. But obviously they were doing something they didn't want someone walking in on. And the age difference could be kind of weird or could be really weird. So I'm not sure. What do you think I should do? Should I tell my sister? Should you tell your sister what? That your nephew, her son was in a room with this person that they're not psyched about, but they know he's in a relationship with, not a romantic or sexual relationship, but a friendship with, they spend a lot of time together, a lot of time talking online and you caught them doing what you caught them existing in a room together with a locked door. Maybe they were having sex. Maybe they were making out most 13, 16 ish year old relationships as awkward and uncomfortable as that is to contemplate from the perspective of adulthood, when we forget what it's like to be 13 and 16 years old, covered by Romeo and Juliet laws. So you didn't catch necessarily a statutory rape going on here, and you didn't catch anything necessarily sexual going on here. Maybe he was showing him his stamp collection. Maybe they were having a private conversation. Maybe they were looking at some internet porn together. Who knows what the fuck they were doing? I don't, and you don't. But you do know that your homophobic family embedded, involved in the conservative Russian Christian community in rural Washington, which is notoriously homophobic, that they're not psyched about the possibility that this kid is gay, potentially, and they're not psyched about this relationship. And so you running to your sister, who will then take it to her husband, that these two were in a locked room together, dot, 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 drama dots, somebody called this on the internet recently, and I love that, dot, 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 is potentially painting a bullseye on the back of this kid that you say that you love and that you've attempted, you claim, to communicate your support to. I'm sorry, it's not supportive to run and narc out a potentially gay 13, 14-year-old kid to his homophobic parents because you suspect that that kid might have been kissing a boy? Can you see how not supportive that is? Instead of running to mom at a moment like this where 
this kid is vulnerable. And as is often the case in LGBT kids' lives, sometimes the worst bullying they face, sometimes the worst bullies they face, it's from their own family and from their own parents. You stoking the paranoia of your brother or brother-in-law, I don't remember which it was, your brother-in-law and your sister around their kid's sexuality at this moment when your kid, when this kid is 13 years old and dependent on them, not the loving, supportive, queer, positive thing to do. You might, on the other hand, want to say something to that kid. Hey, if there's ever anything you want to talk about, you know you're safe with me, you can open up with me. It's awkward when parents are homophobic and sometimes potentially violently homophobic and do shit like throw LGBT kids out on the street, you need adults. Those kids need adults who are going to run interference with mom and dad, not report them back to police headquarters. So go to the kid, say, Hey, you can always open up with me about anything. And I, and tell him, and I won't run to my sister or your dad and rat you out. So if there's anything you need to ask me about, any information you need that'll help keep you safe about sex or anything else, anything you ever want to ask me about relationships or, you know, if you're seeing someone and they're asking you to do anything that's making you uncomfortable that you have questions about, you can come to me and I promise you, I won't say anything to mom and dad. That's the person. That's the adult this 13 year old needs in his life right now. Not a narc, not a cop, not someone ratting him out. Don't rat him out. Err on the side of not getting this kid beaten up by his father. Err on the side of not getting this kid thrown out on the streets by his family or attacked in his school. Err on the side of not pushing this kid to suicide or getting him murdered by his parents. Love and support this kid. Engage with him. Talk to him. Leave mom and dad out of it for now. You would only need to go back to mom and dad and narc him out if he was doing something risky or dangerous that required his parents to intervene. Being momentarily alone in a room with another boy with the door locked doesn't rise to that level. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. WP Schlitz tweets, if people would just realize that sexuality and gender are spectrums, not binaries, at fake Dan Savage could dedicate his life to properly flared bases and lesser known kinks and not have to pacify worried bisexuals in every single episode. All right. No one enjoys talking about flared bases and niche kinks more than I do, but I am happy, always happy to take questions from worried bisexuals along with questions from worried heterosexuals, homosexuals, asexuals, allosexuals, pansexuals, phrasexuals, demisexuals, all the sexuals. Stephen Forrest tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, did you say disinhibiting crutch or disinhibiting crotch last week? I confess a disinhibiting crotch sounds like fun when unleashed respectfully in appropriate situations. I said disinhibiting crutch. I was referring to the drugs and alcohol. Some people sadly have to use to let go of their sexual inhibitions, which can work out sometimes, but can also end disastrously. So disinhibiting crutch, not crotch. Forgive me if that's ableist. And uh, yeah, disinhibiting crotch when you think about it. <laughs> We've all encountered a few of those in our times. And finally, switching it up to an Instagram DM, at Spark Intimacy had this to say about the caller who met a guy into puke. 
If it is indeed a fetish, says Speak Intimacy, that means he prefers VOM as part of sexual experiences. It doesn't mean it has to be. Can he get this need met through porn, another partner, some other workaround? Thanks to everyone who tweeted or posted Instagram about the Lovecast last week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hello, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Youth. I'm calling in response to the woman who experienced a libido boost after sobering up. Yeah, enjoy the sex, like you say, but it's also a fairly common occurrence on people when they first uh, sober up or quit using substances that they experience an overall feeling of well-being. The jargon sometimes calls it pink clouding. And this may be followed by a period where the underlying causes of addiction or substance abuse surface. So enjoy the sex, but also take the time to set up a good, strong recovery program. Enjoy the sex. Enjoy the sobriety. Hey, Dan. With respect to the person whose libido came roaring back after she got sober, I think the real key there might be the fact that she quit smoking. When you quit smoking, you start getting better blood flow and better blood flow to peripheral areas includes areas that if they have more blood, you're going to be more aroused more frequently. And if they have less blood, the opposite. So I know that a lot of times when people quit smoking, they get, you know, more and harder erections and something similar may be going on with, uh, with her. So, uh, I think that should be something to certainly incentivize more people to quit smoking. Hi, Dan. Calling in regards to the intro from episode 787, specifically the toe-tapping code made famous by Larry Craig. Imagine the feeling of serendipity I had this week as I was reading Confess, the memoir from Judas Priest's famously out frontman Rob Helford, and he mentioned employing the toe-tapping ritual on tour. It was implied that he learned it from Bob Dameron's address book, a gay travel guide that he picked up when Priest played in San Francisco for the first time in the late 70s. Maybe that's where Larry Craig learned it, too. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer those voice memos. They have better sound quality. But we love your calls and your comments however you want to get them to us. The deadline to enter Hump 2022 is just one week away, which is still plenty of time to find a sexy pal and make a short porn flick for consideration. They just have to be under five minutes. Things have gotten into Hump that were 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds long, so you don't have to go for the full five. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the other info you need on making the perfect flick for my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival. And this holiday season, you can give the gift of a good sex life by gifting someone a magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast at savage.love, or you can grab a copy of my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, for your loved ones. It has 26 all-new essays on all topics, Savage Love, and great illustrations from Joe Newton. Get one today, wherever books are sold. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Check out Professor Johnston's study at monitoringthefuture.org. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.